0: Good morning all, my name's Steve Frederick, I'm the Senior Minister here, it's great to have you with us and for those joining us online as well, I know that there are a few of you caught in the latest little bump in numbers uh, and we're really encouraged that you can at least join us online, uh, even though you can't be with us in person. Friends, it'll be really helpful for me, particularly, and I've got no doubt it'll be helpful for you as well, if you had those Bibles open uh, in front of you at the passage that we're going to look at together today. Uh, it's on page 1153, uh, there should be uh, Bibles in the pew in front of you, uh, or if you're on the chairs at the front, there's Bibles uh, either side, and that'll be handy to have there to glance with me as we work through the passage. Uh, we won't have a question time today, because we're going to be sharing in the Lord's Supper together, uh, but on your service outline sheet, there is a talk outline, and there's, on the other side, there's a QR code for a connection form. Uh, And you'd be more than welcome to submit any questions, um, comments or observations that you might have about what we look at together this morning, because in coming weeks, Paul's going to circle back around to some of the same kinds of issues, uh, and that'll give us the opportunity for me to address any questions that might come up uh, as we get to that. Well, not long after Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthian church that we've been looking at together over the course of this year... Christians began to be publicly labelled, believe it or not, as atheists on account of their decision to worship only one God. That was effectively as good as being an atheist to the ancient way of thinking. And in laying aside the entire pantheon of approved Roman gods, Christians were seen to represent a threat to the religious diversity Of the ancient world, specifically the Roman Empire. And in worshipping a god who had not been officially sanctioned by the Roman Emperor, Christian spirituality was seen as undermining the social unity and cohesion of the Roman Empire. And this concern that the Christian faith uh, presented a threat to both the religious diversity of the ancient world and the social cohesion of the Roman Empire is actually implied and hinted at in a letter that was written by a governor called Pliny to the Roman Emperor Trajan. Uh, He was writing this letter about a bunch of suspected Christians that he was interrogating and considering prosecuting for their faith. Uh, This is what he wrote, Uh, two little sections from the letter will pop up on the screen. Uh, Describing this interrogation process, uh, Pliny wrote... Those who denied that they were Christians, who called upon the gods, that is the Roman gods, and who offered incense and wine before your image, the emperor's image, along with the regular statues of all the gods, I consider them acquitted. That is, he didn't charge them with being Christians. Especially, he writes, as they cursed the name of Christ, which is said, genuine Christians cannot be induced to do. Pliny saw that genuine Christians, as he frames it there, were a slumbering threat to the religious diversity and the social cohesion and unity of the ancient Roman world. That the only way to protect the spiritual diversity and the social cohesion of the Roman Empire was to induce these believers to curse Christ's name, to, to distance themselves from the Christian faith they might have once professed. Now, whether or not Pliny had personally read Paul's words that were written to the Corinthian church in verses 1 to 3, I'm not sure, but he certainly seems to have heard at least secondhand, of some of the kind of things that Paul himself taught in the opening chapter that we're looking at today. Uh, Have a look with me at chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. See if you can note some of the similar themes uh, that Pliny had complained about. Paul writes in chapter 12... Now, about the gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, I don't want you to be uninformed. You know that when you are pagans, somehow or other, you are influenced and led astray to dumb idols, that is, idols that can't speak. Therefore, I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit." one can perhaps imagine, if Pliny had read these words, why Paul's words here might have ruffled his feathers. Pliny understood that the Christianity, that the kind of unity and diversity that Christianity challenged in the Roman Empire, was the kind of diversity and unity that the pagan world most valued and held dear. There's an exclusivism, isn't there, to Paul's words there, that challenged the diversity and the unity that the pagans valued, and particularly, that the emperor was able to control on his own terms. And it's an accusation that still gets levelled sometimes, doesn't it, against Christians, against the Christian faith, that Christianity threatens a social unity and harmony, that it flattens out, that it suffocates all diversity and difference. Perhaps you've felt unsettled yourself by those kind of criticisms that have sometimes been levelled against the Christian faith. What is striking, though, that in the next verses, and in fact, the verses that we're going to follow in the coming couple of weeks, Paul makes a startling claim that the one God, the only solo God of the Bible, is himself actually the very source of spiritual diversity. That the Christian God promotes diversity rather than suffocating it. Have a look at how Paul expresses this uh, in the next few verses, verse 4. Glance down to verse 4 with me. There, Paul writes, there are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit, or the one Spirit, distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same, or the one Lord, there are different kinds of working, but in all of them, And in everyone, it is the same God at work. Over today's passage, Paul is going to make the claim that the one God that Christians worship is the source of both diversity and unity without undermining either of them, without watering down either. That each person of the Trinity, God the Spirit, the Lord Jesus Himself, and God the Father, All three are intimately involved in promoting both unity and diversity within the church in a way that it can't be seen outside the church. Uh, Paul begins, though, you'll see as we work through today's passage, he addresses first the way in which the Spirit contributes to this unity and diversity, then he speaks about how uh, Jesus, God the Son, uh, shapes our unity and diversity, and he'll conclude with speaking about how God the Father shapes our unity and our diversity with, with one another within the church. First of all, though, Paul highlights the way in which the work of God the Spirit promotes both unity and diversity amongst God's people. Uh, have a look with me at verse 7. Paul writes in verse 7, Now, to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom... To another, a message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by that one Spirit. To another, miraculous powers. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between Spirits. To another, speaking in different kinds of tongues. And still to another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are the work of one and the same Spirit. And He distributes them to each one, just as He determines. Uh, in the next couple of verses, Paul will say that we have all been baptised into, that is, we have been all immersed in the one Spirit, God's Spirit. Yet, this one baptism, this one immersion in the Spirit, doesn't produce a bland sameness amongst God's people. Rather, the Spirit, the one Spirit, is manifest, or He reveals Himself in a startling array of different expressions. I wonder if you notice there, as we skip through verses 7 to 11, Paul writes, To one there is given, to another, to another, to another, to another, to another, to another, to still another. One Spirit, and Paul just is able to squeeze in there nine different ways in which the Spirit is manifest in the lives of believers as they live their lives together. Now, I suspect that we're often so engrossed, when we read this passage, tell me later on if I'm completely way off base here and wrong, but I suspect that we're often so engrossed in the puzzling over exactly what these manifestations of the Spirit might concretely look like, that we actually fail to appreciate just how diverse the Spirit's working through people is. Uh, Now, today, I'm not going to go through and give a detailed definition of each of these gifts. Paul himself doesn't, although in coming weeks, in coming chapters, he does. We'll see, we'll come back and especially look at uh, the gifts of prophecy and speaking in tongues and interpreting in tongues and distinguishing between spirits. They're all going to shape a significant amount of what Paul has to say in coming weeks. But I do want to point out that there is no one list in the Bible of how the Spirit manifests Himself in the lives of believers, no one list that is given is ever the same or includes the same list of gifts. So, even if I went into exhausting detail about each of these gifts, all you'd have to do is turn over a couple of pages and you'd find another list with gifts that had mentioned that I'd left out. But we will come back and work through them a little bit, but I don't actually think that detailing the gifts are Paul's primary concern in today's passage. In fact, I think the Corinthians were all over the top of being able to identify every single gift. I think they were absolutely crystal clear on what gifts they valued and what ones they had themselves. That isn't the concern that Paul wants to draw their attention to. The Spirit manifests His working through us in countless ways and in ever-changing ways. No one of these spirits is something that we've been given that is a permanent mark of who we are, spiritually speaking, as if these gifts are the spiritual equivalent of our personality profiles. For example, the Apostle Paul himself, through him, God's Spirit sometimes manifested in revealing His power through miraculous healings that the Apostle Paul was able to perform. Rarely, but sometimes, for the Apostle Paul... But on other occasions, we discover that the same Apostle Paul had to leave some of his fellow missionaries behind as he headed off on a missionary trip when they became sick, with no hint of him ever having taken any action to heal them. The way in which the Spirit manifests is not some solid, concrete, constant aspect of who we are, it's an aspect of who the Spirit is as He works in and through us. It's not that Paul was playing favourites by healing some and not others. Spiritual gifts are not abilities that we ourselves individually possess, but rather ways that the one Spirit manifests His diverse work amongst us, however He chooses, and whenever He chooses to do it, and whenever He chooses not to do it. Uh, If you went looking for a book On the topics uh, outlined and covered uh, in this chapter, I wouldn't recommend this one, but most of them probably wouldn't be too dissimilar to the kind of book that's up on the screen there, a book that's promising to help us to discover our spiritual gifts and to activate them. And yet, the choice of those words is quite intriguing, to discover one's gifts, as if they're hidden, kind of couched away in a way that you would never know that they were there, or or to activate our gifts as if they're somehow lying there latent until we decide to give attention and energy to them. Yet gifts are not something we need to discover, rather they're something that God gives. Not surprising given that they're spoken of as gifts, is it? And they're not something that we have to activate by our own strength, rather they're manifestations of God's Spirit choosing to work, when and however He will. In the Christian community, diversity is not something that is primarily a result of our own self-expression. That's not the kind of diversity that marks Christian community but rather the self-expression of God's Spirit working differently in and through each of us, in many multiple, different, multifaceted kinds of ways. Diversity is not primarily something that we ourselves contribute to the Church, but rather that's something God the Spirit gives, whenever and however He sees fit. Despite all the dazzling ways in which God the Spirit might conceivably manifest Himself amongst us and we're going to reflect on how that might be in coming weeks, a little bit more. All of this diversity is ultimately directed and channeled in one direction. I wonder if you noticed that at the very start of the last section we read. Uh, Glance right back to verse 7, we read a moment ago, where Paul wrote, Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good, all of the various manifestations, all for one purpose, for the common good. So, So, what is this single, what is this one, what is this united common good that Paul is thinking of when he speaks about where all of these multifaceted, different manifestations of the Spirit are directed? I think to answer this question, Paul moves on to highlight for us how God the Son, how the Lord Jesus Himself, defines the shape and the character of Christian unity and diversity. Uh, Have a look with me at chapter 12, verse 12. Verse 12. Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one Spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slaves or free, and we were all given the one Spirit to drink. And so the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Christ, the Lord Jesus, is described here as a single body into whom each of us has been grafted as diverse body parts. Uh, Just this last week on Facebook, I noticed a friend had shared a memory from a year ago, uh, a memory that was celebrating a full year since her father had successfully donated a kidney, one of her kidneys to her. Uh, Her own kidneys had failed, she needed a kidney and her father had donated a kidney, often, of course, because family members have got a closer match with the person who needs the donation, uh, less likely of that body part being rejected, or spat out, or failing. It's always sobering, I think, as I hear about someone about to have a transplant, that looming threat or risk of the donated body part, the organ, being perhaps rejected by the body. But in contrast to such a heartbreaking kind of scenario, there is no human category of diversity, Paul says, that the Spirit can't graft into Christ as a member of His body. Jews, Gentiles, slaves, free. There were no different social distinctions that could be further apart than Jew and Gentile in the ancient world or slave and free person. Yet there is no experience, none of those experiences of difference should result in a forced rejection of someone from membership in Christ's body. And that's, in fact, what the Church was made up of, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, in a way that was never seen that kind of unity and diversity anywhere else in the ancient world. Of course, for us, it probably provokes other questions, other kinds of diversity that perhaps are a little bit more front and centre, more present for us than questions of Jew and Gentile that barely even manifest themselves in our thinking on a day-to-day basis, let alone slave and free. Provokes the question, perhaps for some of us, of questions about the, the, the issue of diversity and uh, queer sexuality, perhaps. People have used passages like this one to suggest, well, shouldn't the Church just equally embrace the full diversity of human sexual expression in exactly the same way that we would of Jew or Gentile or slave or free? And there's a very real potential for us to get ourselves in a bit of a tangle around trying to answer a question like that. Paul is not suggesting here that as we are united to the Lord Jesus, as His body parts, as His body members, that He Himself, Jesus, is increasingly defined by our diverse characteristics. Jesus doesn't become more Jewish or more Gentile or more slave or more free as we're added in to His body. But rather, that despite the differences and the diversities that once defined us, none need to prevent us from sharing together in Jesus' identity, as we become members of His body. Whether we be Jews or Gentiles, or slaves or free, being grafted into the body of Christ will transform us and how we express our diversity despite all our diversity, as we become members of Christ, we will increasingly grow to share Jesus' identity, not the other way around. And this is especially clear back in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Uh, if you weren't with us last year, when we worked through 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you'll be able to find that talk uh, on our webpage, through the, the podcast, and perhaps have a listen to it, where Paul insists that our being grafted in as members of Christ's body means that we are now to use our own bodies in a manner that honours Christ, rather than implicate Him in behaviour that expresses ourselves. It's Christ's identity that begins to shape us, rather than the other way around. And that's as true for Jew and Gentile, slave and free, and any kind of expression or identification of sexuality as well. In being grafted into Christ's body, He comes to shape who we are and what we do with the difference that we have. But why might God have chosen to form His church, the body of Christ, from such a palette of impossibly different and diverse materials, so to speak? It's way easier to get cohesion and unity If you just start with people who already completely agree with each other and think exactly the same way, Paul goes on to explain that by uniting together people who are marked by stark difference and diversity, our unity is actually going to be deepened. That sounds a little bit counterintuitive, doesn't it? That by starting with people who are more diverse and different, our unity will be actually deepened through a growing acknowledgement of our interdependence upon one another. Have a look at how Paul puts that in chapter, uh, chapter 12, verse 15. Verse 15 is where we'll pick it up. Still using the body analogy, Paul writes, Now, if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body. It would not, for that reason, stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts of the body, every one of them, just as He wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. Here Paul is not so much providing us us with a justification for insisting, you church, you need me as much as he is trying to provoke in each of us an ever-deepening recognition that I need you. Paul's point here is not to get us going away this morning thinking, yes, the church really needs me, even though that might be true. He's warning us and provoking us to recognise that I need the other. A body is not a voluntary organisation, is it? The members of a body aren't free to come and go, as they will, to take a leave of absence, as it suits them. There is an irreducible interdependence between the members of a human body. Friends, so too with us. Despite our ingrained tendency towards self-sufficiency and autonomy, God has arranged the church, Christ's body, in such a manner that we are constantly provoked to recognise our own dependence upon others. As we deepen in our recognition, in this recognition of our shared need for one another, so we will be provoked to increasingly honour one another as well. Have a look with me where Paul goes in verse 21 and following. Back to verse 21... The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honourable, we treat with special honour. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving greater honour... To the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is on it, every part rejoices with it. Here we see the diversity that God the Father brings to the church body. As a rule, we will treat with contempt that which we assume we have very little need of, won't we? And we will honour that which we recognise we'd be helpless without. Um, I've got in my backyard a hill's hoist that until recently looked not too dissimilar to the one that you'll see on the screen there. Um, right where the, two, the top part and the bottom part joined together, uh, it had really rusted out um, and the, the whole metal piping at the top had rusted through and it was just—it was leaning over. It was going to collapse on me or someone else very soon. Uh, and so, on a day off, even though it was raining, I decided I was going to fix it. Went in, got my socket set. Went out, went out to fix the uh, uh, the hill's hoist. And what do you know? It? Uh, if you're looking closely, a couple of the screws—the key ones, the bolts—were recessed right into the mechanism that held the top and the bottom pipes together. There was no way I could get in there. I needed this little extension piece that allowed the socket set to swap right inside and I knew I had one because I'd seen it before but it wasn't in my socket set (laughs) I remember it had fallen out at some point and I thought I don't imagine when I'm going to use that and I tossed it in some other random box of tools and I didn't have any idea which random box of tools that it was I knew that I had one of those pieces somewhere but in not being able to imagine how I might use it down the track, I'd treated it with contempt, instead of replacing it where it belonged. Though I'd never imagined a scenario in which I'd need that piece, here I was, with a leaning hill's hoist, about to collapse, and stuck without that part, which I so desperately needed. Once I did rediscover it, after lots of rummaging through various compiled boxes of bits and pieces, I restored it, this time, to its rightful place with a newly awoken recognition of what it was there for. I gave it back the honour that it deserved. Friends, we treat with contempt that which we we imagine we'll have very little use of down the track. And we learn to honour more deeply that which we discover we're actually helpless without. And the same, friends, is true even more so, isn't it, of body parts, of those whom we're knitted together with as members of Christ's body? Do we dare neglect those members of Christ's body that God has placed amongst us, simply because we yet lack the imagination to perceive why He might have placed them there amongst us to begin with? God honours the diversity of the body that He has formed in a manner that we so often fail to replicate in the way in which we treat and deal with one another. Paul is not suggesting here that everyone should be honoured equally. In fact, those parts, Paul says in this passage even, those parts that are most clearly of benefit, Paul insists need no special treatment. And Paul applies that to himself as an apostle. Earlier on in the letter, he says, me, as an apostle, I'm led last I'm I'm dishonoured while you guys are honoured. Paul's not saying that everyone needs to be given an equal platform and equally honoured. It's not equal honour or glory that Paul is exhorting to crown each other with, but did you notice what it is there? To be crowning each other with equal care and concern, with a humble recognition that it's God Himself who has given us one another, as precious gifts, who are indispensable to his body. Uh, If I was to riff off Paul's body metaphor a little bit, uh, I've got an image up on the screen, I know that it's perhaps a little bit Big Brother and creepy idea of of an image here, a big eyeball, but let's riff off Paul's imagery of body parts uh, here as we think through how to reflect and respond to today's passage. Perhaps sitting behind you in church today, the pew behind you, is an eye a member of Christ's body, an eye that you've never given much thought to, but who one day may perceive just the briefest flicker of despair that clouds your face, where no one else even notices. And that eye, perhaps, that you've barely noticed or given any thought to in previous times, goes and suggests that the hand bring you a touch of comfort, or go and urges the tongue to come and speak to you, that word of encouragement that restores you. You might not even know that it was the eye who had noticed that little glimmer of despair flicker across your face and yet God uses that member of the body in order to show equal care and concern. When our church community got together about a year ago or so to discuss what it is that we wanted to value, what characteristics of community we wanted to value together, diversity was one value that stood out with a fair degree of clarity in what people had communicated. And those who drafted the value statement, uh, it's on the front sheet, you can kind of scan the QR code and find those later on, but those who, va- uh, who drafted that value statement grasped with real clarity, I think, exactly what Christ-shaped diversity looks like. Uh, This is the, um, the statement that they drafted. As a church community, we value the differing experiences and insights that enrich our shared unity in Christ. Not just valuing diversity randomly because it's kind of popular to do so, to value that diversity that enriches our shared unity in Christ as members of His body along with an empathy that deepens our fellowship with each other. Uh, This week, I found myself benefiting enormously from such Christ-shaped diversity amongst God's Church, from fellow Church members whom God has knitted together with me as part of this Church body. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, my family were in Church ISO, uh, sorry, in well, they're in isolation from everything, Um, we just felt being away from church, but they're in family isolation. Uh, I wasn't exposed, so um, I didn't need to be in isolation and I had stuff to do for church. And so God provided me with a hand who opened the door to a spare room for me that I could make my own, to live in over that week, so that I could come here on the Sunday following and be here to encourage and share time with you. At the end of this week, God graciously provided me with an eye, someone who saw and recognised in me a weariness that I'd not yet seen or recognised in myself and they gently exhorted me to think about what kind of rest I actually needed. And then yesterday, uh, at the end of a four-hour stretch of sermon writing, this was just not all of it, this was part of it, but at the end of a one particular four-hour stretch of sermon writing in which the most productive thing that I achieved was to delete half of what I'd previously written that morning. God provided me with a tongue who waltzed into my church office and prayed that God Himself might finish what I couldn't seem to. I mean, what was so outstanding about that tongue? I could have easily prayed for myself the very same words that they prayed. But I didn't. I didn't pray the tongue that God graciously provided for me. They prayed. A glance again with me as we finish up at verse 21. We looked at this earlier on. Verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. I think this really lies at the heart of what Paul would have us take away from today's passage. The Corinthian church, the church to whom Paul was writing, had no doubt about the importance of their own place in the church. That wasn't something that they were confused or uncertain about. They all thought that they were the most important body part what they needed to hear was verse 21. And friends, I'd urge you to listen to that first verse primarily as well. Paul's desire is not that we head home today with our thoughts fixed upon how indispensable or otherwise we ourselves are to Christ's body, though we are, but rather that we'd receive, we'd have a renewed inclination to recognise and perceive in each other God's gift to us, so that in all our manifest diversity and difference, we might discover an equal concern for all those whom God has knitted us together with, as members of Christ's body here in Summer Hill. Let's pray that that would be the case. Our dearest Father, so often, diversity seems to chafe with unity And the call to be united seems to chafe with diversity and we struggle to see how one could relate to the other or how one could coexist and be sustained alongside the other. Father, we thank You for this picture that You've given us here, that our unity is not of our own making and our diversity is not of our own expressing, but that in making us members of Christ's body, You have both knit us together as one body, and that through the work of Your Spirit, You work differently in astoundingly diverse and myriad ways through us. Father, we ask that this diversity and this unity, that both would be expressed in a deepening concern for the other, and that that might be the vision of church life that grips us and captivates us. We ask this in Jesus' name, and for His sake, Amen.